0: DW, Worldlink, with Gabriel Baroud.
1: That is indeed my name. A warm welcome to Worldlink. On this week's show, we are going to delve into northern Syria and visit a place that has successfully held an election for a local council. It's a rare glimpse of democracy amidst the ongoing civil war and a glimmer of the revolutionary spirit that is threatened by increased infighting and oppression within the rebel factions. Most of the armed factions
2: have abandoned many of the principles we carried in 2011. Certainly, the love of power amongst faction leaders and love of control are cases that do not comply with the principles of the revolution of
1: 2011. That in-depth report and a bunch more is coming up on Worldlink right now. The war in Syria has been going on for eight years. It has cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and has displaced half the population. The fighting between forces loyal to President Bashar al-Assad and those who want to remove him has no end in sight and is an increasingly violent chaos. What began as an uprising against the Assad regime has resulted in splintered armed factions, including jihadist groups who are fighting over an enclave of territory in the north of the country, in Idlib and areas in and around Aleppo. Amidst the fighting, however, there are also Syrians who are trying to practice democracy. And that is what this story is all about. We're going to go to Anjara in northern Syria and meet a woman who, against all odds, has won a seat in a local council. There was an election in November, and she took on dozens of men and won. For her, the victory not only symbolizes the spirit of the Syrian revolution of 2011, it also demonstrates that true democracy is possible that ballots can prevail over bullets. This in-depth report is the work of Sean Carey,
3: Asma al-Omar, and Marion Zenker. It's a cold autumn night in late November as the sun sets over the Aleppo countryside. Surrounded by green fields of olive trees is the humble town of Anjara. Standing two stories high, Anjara's tallest building is the old agricultural office, if you don't count the nearby ruins of the fortress of Simeon a 5th-century church built by the Byzantine Empire. It's mostly farmers who live here, simple people, like 26-year-old Kinana (laughs) Razuk. This evening, Kinana is nervously pacing around in her home. She can barely contain her excitement as the whole family is waiting for news that could change all of their lives. Anjara is a small town with big dreams. They're coming together to try something they've never done before, holding an election.
4: It's an indescribable feeling, a mixture of fear and hope and waiting. We're waiting for the votes to be counted. The excitement is killing me.
3: Kinana is running for a spot in the local council against three other women and 31 other men. If she wins, she'll be the first woman to be elected.
4: To be honest, all the women in the surrounding villages got excited when they saw our names and started to feel a sense of purpose in their lives. They're looking forward to seeing a woman elected in the council. So my hope is that we're starting to pave the road for women in politics. While
3: Anjara's residents cast their votes, the brutal Syrian war goes on. No more than 20 kilometers to Anjara's east, rebels face down government soldiers at the Aleppo city limits. And to Anjara's west is Idlib, the last province still outside the Syrian government's control. For decades, people in Syria never experienced what it was like to vote in a real election. Under the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad and his father Hafez al-Assad before him, elections were mostly a sham, says Salam Kawakibi, director
0: of the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies in Paris. You have to know that we have not had real elections in Syria since 1958. They used to be false or organized with 99 percent of the vote for the regime. It used to be a comedy.
3: A comedy called democracy. Elections in Syria were always scripted reality. Everybody knew how election day would end. Another victory for Assad. But that's exactly what Syrians living outside Assad's reach are hoping to change, says Jawad Abu-Hattab, president of the Syrian interim government, which was formed by the opposition in
0: 2011. We're trying to build democracy in
4: Syria brick by brick. This is a step forward for the Syrian people. We hope it will spread to other areas and expand all the way to parliament, one that will have a real mandate to form a new constitution and
3: choose the next executive government. That interim government hoped to take over power if Assad were to step down or be ousted, but it doesn't have any real power in the country it's hoping to change. It's not even headquartered in Syria, but works from neighboring Turkey. Today, Syria enters the eighth year of a war that has seen hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives, nearly a third of the country displaced or exiled, and most of the country left in ruins. Round after round of negotiations and peace talks have failed to bring an end to the fighting. The latest effort to solve the crisis, coming from Russia, Turkey, and Iran, has been to announce a plan to establish a committee that would set about the process of writing a new constitution for Syria. But Kawakibi says a new constitution is not what Syria needs.
0: It's not helping to resolve the problem at all, and they know it and continue to do it just to say, we do something we have to at least apply the constitution, in actual constitution. Since Assad's father has been in power, this constitution, it
3: was denied. His hope is that elections, like the one in Anjara, can put the country on a path toward democracy. But among the bullets flying over Syria, casting ballots here today may seem like just a drop in the bucket. Flashback to 2011, when streets across the country filled with protests demanding an end to the regime of Assad. Most Syrians refer to his government as a regime, because the mafia-like rule by the Assad family doesn't represent anything like a government for them.
0: We had a
2: one-party policy and one ruler who imposed himself on people as a dictator. And he saw that he and his family own Syria, and that Syria is their farm, and the Syrians are just
3: slaves. That's Hadi El Abdullah, a young Syrian activist who documented the crackdown with nothing but his cell phone and a Twitter account. Looking back at the footage he took at the beginning of the protest, Hadi remembers how people took to the streets. Day after day, we saw
2: people out on the streets, and day after day, the regime responded with direct fire, grenades, and arrests. We would demonstrate during the day and hear at night that police had come and arrested friends who were on the street that day.
3: For over four decades, the Assad dynasty controlled the country with fear, using a Stasi-like system of secret police and networks of informers. It demanded absolute loyalty. You couldn't trust anyone. Just a word of dissent against the country's leaders could get you thrown in prison or disappeared, remembers Kawakibi, who can't return to his home country, for fear he'll suffer the same.
0: The society was destroyed by the regime for decades. People used to be scared of their families even like in Eastern Germany back then, only 10 times harder.
3: The protests that started in early 2011 broke through that fear, but they also gave way to a spiraling civil war that Syria as we know it today is still embroiled in. What's lesser known is that it also gave birth to a groundbreaking experiment in democracy in the middle of a war zone. For the first time, Syrians could speak out against the regime to demand social freedoms, free election, and end to 50 years of martial law. After months of peaceful protests were met with blood on the streets, the protest movement became an armed rebellion. As hundreds of government soldiers defected from the army to form rebel militias, Assad faced a problem. With so many cities in open revolt, He had to withdraw from smaller villages and towns to focus his forces on defending the capital and major cities from falling to the rebels. Award-winning journalist Anand Gopal, who reports for The New Yorker magazine, notes how back then, pretty much overnight, people in those areas realized they had no more
5: government. So there were no more government services. Trash started to pile up and schools weren't running. And so the, the locals in these communities, especially the activists, were confronted with uh, the need to try to organize a, a, a new government, really, a new mini-government to run their society and to, to keep services afloat. And, and so you began to see something called uh, local councils, which were, began to pop up all around Syria. And they were essentially um, groups of activists who assumed the position of the government in these areas. So they became, they essentially ran these, these communities. And the, these local councils...
3: Just like the local council being elected in Anjara this November. About 5,000 residents from nine villages that belong to Anjara's district are lined up to cast ballots for the 15-member council that will oversee the day-to-day life in this corner of rebel-held Syria. It keeps the water running and the lights on. Issues birth certificates, marriage and death certificates, keeps contact with local civil society and NGOs, and pays the salaries of school teachers and hospital employees. Voters wait in the queue before stepping behind a curtain to cast their ballots. They're excited and proud. <laughs>
4: I came at 6 a.m. to the polling center in the center of the village of Saloum.
0: I'm excited because it's the first time for us to witness free elections. Elections must be
2: held. A citizen has to feel he has value and that he is building up the community.
0: I'm really happy
1: to see that women now have a voice in the elections. And I hope I'm making the right decision by electing them.
3: Anjara's election doesn't look a lot like what you'd expect from other countries. There are no billboards with the candidates' faces, just hand-painted banners calling on people to vote. Each of the villages held public forums where the candidates made their case to voters, explains one. The candidates presented their plans of action to build and develop the
1: educational centers. They promised good services.
4: Honestly, this is not just a success for me. Women came to me and told me, your success means our success and all women's success. It was a very, very beautiful day for me. I won't ever forget this feeling of happiness.
3: For Kinana, elections like the one in Anjara represent the aspirations of the Syrian revolution. But what followed in the years of war since those days of hopeful protest was a battle for the soul of the revolution. And it's hard to say that those aspirations are winning. The map of Syria today is divided into areas of regime control and rebel control, but the rebel group's identities or ideologies are by no means homogenous. Instead, you have a diverse hodgepodge of different factions that vary from town to town, village to village, even sometimes by neighborhood. The revolution didn't have any leaders, and nobody knew what would come next if they were to succeed in overthrowing Bashar al-Assad. People from around the Middle East even came to Syria, some in solidarity with the revolution and some to join in the fight.
5: But pretty quickly, a a, a different type of person came to Syria and and these are people who were inspired by some form of um, political Islam or Islamic fundamentalism. They saw the fight against the regime, not only in, in its own terms, but also as a way to try to establish an Islamic society or Islamic state. In Syria. And so there was a second. For some,
3: the rebellion to overthrow Assad was for democracy and equality for all Syrians, no matter their sect or religion Sunni, Shia, Alawite, Arab, Kurdish alike. For others, it was to replace Assad's laws with the laws of God, or Sharia. Today, the strongest rebel group on the ground in Syria is a Sunni Islamist militia called Hayat Tahrir al Sham, or HTS, better known as the Syrian Wing of Al Qaeda. As the conflict went on, year after year, one atrocity after another, Syrians like Hadi felt utterly abandoned as the world looked on, powerless to stop the bloodshed.
2: The world's negligence is a shadow over Syria. We all know that Syrians demanded human freedom and dignity of Syrians and had lofty ideals in 2011 in demanding the overthrow of a criminal regime that killed so many Syrians. But there wasn't
3: one country that took real action for Syria. Hadi says it's that negligence that played into the hands of rebel groups which were willing to use more and more extreme and violent means to fight against Assad and to hold on to their own territory. Al-Qaeda came with slogans like, what we have come to do is
2: support you, or we came because of people's love for their country and religion. The neglect of the world led them to trust in al-Qaeda. People said that these people came to support us at the time when the world had given up on us.
3: This was what gave them legitimacy. It's not an uncommon sentiment among Syrians that the international community's inaction helped turn the tide in favor of groups like ISIS. Known by its Arabic acronym, Daesh, Kawakabi concurs.
0: It also sent an encouragement to Daesh. They use it and show to the Syrian people, or some part of the Syrian people, that all the values of Western country and democracy is bullshit. Come to us, we will give you a haven, victory in the name of God.
3: HTS, the most powerful rebel faction on the ground today in Syria, has its roots in Al-Qaeda, After fighters came to Syria to join in the fight on the side of the revolution. Today, it controls a considerable portion of the country still beyond Assad's reach. But some in the rebel held areas are beginning to wonder whether the militants who once claimed to fight for the revolution have become just as bad as the regime they're fighting against. Hadi al Abdullah is one of them. Most of the armed factions
0: have abandoned
3: many
2: of the principles we carried in 2011. Certainly, the love of power amongst faction leaders and love of control are cases that do not comply with the principles of the revolution of
5: 2011.
3: In late October 2018, reports came that shocked the Syrian community, both inside Syria and abroad. In the Idlib town of Kafranbel, Ra'ed Faris, a prominent activist known for his protest banners with hand-painted messages addressed to the world in English, was gunned down in broad daylight. The number one suspect wasn't ISIS or Assad's hitmen, but the rebel factions that control the area.
2: He was killed because he was the embodiment of the revolution. Rayed was carrying the revolution from the first days in March 2011
3: until the day he died. Haidi had often worked with Faris at the offices of Radio Fresh in Kafranbel, which served as a lifeline broadcasting to the liberated areas of Syria. They played music and had female presenters reading the news. To HTS, that was a problem.
2: We received many threats from them, even death threats against Rayed and myself and even recently. There were threats of arrest, defamation, and threats to, quote, demonize us in the eyes of the people. So people believe that, most likely, it was HTS.
3: HTS continues to impose a strict rule over civilians in the areas they control. Because they claim to be the only thing standing in the way of Assad, they are the ultimate authority. People aren't free to speak out against them, and dozens of journalists have been detained or disappeared when they fall out of HDS's favor. Today, the over 3 million civilians living in Idlib are stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one side are the armed factions who increasingly control their lives and restrict their freedoms. On the other, they face Assad and his Russian allies who threaten total annihilation in retaking control over the last rebel-held province. Still, many like Hadi say they would rather die in Idlib than go back to living under the regime.
2: Despite all the threats and oppression inside of Syria, there are people who are trying to hold on to the spirit of the revolution until their last breath. Peaceful activists who are still trying to carry the spirit of the revolution and abide by its
0: principles.
3: As the calendar turns a page into another new year, back in Anjara, Kinana has already begun her new job as a member of the local council. One of her first tasks is coordinating backup electricity for when the power goes out, which is pretty often.
4: The <laughs> electricity that the local council has been able to provide has kept the power lines alive since the regime decided to cut off the electricity.
3: For the time being, Anjara is relatively peaceful. It's a minor, insignificant town. There isn't anybody fighting to recapture it from the Free Syrian Army who's currently in control. She says they don't interfere with the local council's decisions, which are mostly administrative. But if anybody tries to come in and assert themselves, she's not worried about them. To a certain extent, the armed groups aren't really able to hold on to territory if they don't have the support of the local population. And Kinana says they've tried in the past and failed. And if they try again, the people of Anjara are committed to their principles.
4: Islam does not conflict with democracy at all. And the factions that are acting in the opposite way to Islam are just claiming it's Islam. But in reality, they don't understand its teachings. They use Islam as a cover to impose their control over people's minds.
3: Now that the election's over, though, Kinana doesn't have much time for philosophical questions. Her biggest concern is keeping the lights on. Small town, small problems. This piece was reported and produced by Sean Carrier, Asma Al-Omar, and Marion Senghor.
0: For personal stories from around the globe, check out DW's radio
1: weekly, Worldlink, at dw.com worldlink, or find it on iTunes. Many thanks to Sean Carey, Asma Al-Omar, and Marion Zenker for that report from northern Syria. You're listening to DW's Worldlink with me, Gabriel Borud in Bonn, Germany. Coming up on the rest of the show, we're going to meet a Senegalese...